This is my PhD experience podcast, the podcast devoted to graduate students, aspiring students, early career researchers interested in learning tips to help them get hired in graduate school and excel as a researcher. I am your host, Anthony. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Emmanuel Olamijuan. I've known Emmanuel um, for a pretty long time, I think uh, close to four years now, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I mean, we've collaborated and uh, I, must, I must say he's one of the most intelligent uh, doctors I, you know, I've had the pleasure of working with. Um, it's my pleasure to have you here today, uh, Dr. Emmanuel. Uh, please introduce yourself for our listeners. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Antonio, for the opportunity and having me on this space. Uh, I'm Emmanuel Olamijua, and I'm currently a research fellow at the University of Southampton. Um, my background is in demography and population studies, and my primary research interest lies at the intersection of technology, culture, sexuality, and population health in sub-Saharan Africa. Currently, I'm working with an interdisciplinary team to develop a corpus-focused uh, behavior change model for improving join HIV testing and counseling among couples in South Africa. And it's my pleasure to join you. And I look forward to the discussion of sharing my... Thank you so much um, for the uh, introduction. And uh, for some of our listeners that, uh, you know, you do, you specialize in demography, um, you can reach out to Emmanuel um, uh, to collaborate, maybe to even do uh, papers together or grants. Uh, because I believe that's one of the benefits of um, being a um, listener of these uh, podcasts. You can be able to reach out to people who can mentor you through your PhD journey uh, as well. So that said, I mean, it must be uh, an interesting journey from uh, uh, Nigeria to South Africa and now to UK. Mm -hmm. So my first question is, take me through your motivation. When did you know that you were going to do PhD? And uh, what motivated you to pursue a PhD? Um, really, really good question. I've I've known that I wanted to be a professor since my undergraduate days, and um, yeah, it's it's one of the uh, it's been my it's been an interest. It's been a passion since I enrolled for my bachelor's program in demography, and I knew that for me to be an expert in demography, I need a post I need a postgraduate degree in demography. That includes a master's and a PhD. So that has been part of the pipeline for me. Yeah, the journey started pretty early for you. Uh, for some yeah. of us, <laughs> we um, we only got to, you know, decide to pursue PhD maybe during a master's. Once you made that decision, it seemed like you act on it so swiftly. Again, given that you already um, had that plan uh, very prematurely. So take me through your journey um, from Nigeria to, to South Africa. How did that happen? What, how, did you, how did you learn about uh, South Africa? Because the destination used to be, uh, it's still US or UK yeah. for most Nigerians. Why South Africa? Um, really good question. Uh, when I was doing my bachelor's degree, um, well, I had, a, I had a family who who was based in the UK and... Yeah, in the UK, and they used to send us prospectus from University of Greenwich, and I used to read that, and sometimes I used to dream about going to Greenwich, University of Greenwich, I think it's University of Greenwich, uh, and yeah, so so from reading that, I I was already prepared for studying abroad, but it's just that I wasn't sure where I was going to study or what course I was going to study, and during my bachelor's degree, one of our lecturers was doing a postdoc, Dr. Loretta was doing a postdoc at the University of Vitz in South Africa. And so from, from knowing that, I started also searching for information about VITS, but also University of Cape Town in South Africa. So those two universities were like in my top list and also because of finances. Um, yeah, also because of finances. So, I, well, at first it was University of um, McGill in Canada, but also uh, University of um, VITS and UCT in South Africa. If I don't get scholarship or even means of financing um, education in those schools yeah yeah that that takes me to an important question um 
Uh, and, and I know for many people listening, they're also thinking about um, navigating the process of, you know, getting a scholarship and, and traveling abroad for their study. Um, in, in your case, did you get a scholarship for your um, st- for your study to travel abroad? Yes, um, I got a, uh, a postgraduate merit award for my honors degree, but that only covers part of the tuition. So it covers... Yeah, it covers the tuition and we have to I have to fund my own accommodation and living expense in South Africa. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I do know, but maybe we'll talk about that um, subsequently. But I do know that um, you know, self-funding or self-partially funding is still a lot of expense. Um, yeah. and maybe we'll talk about funding. Um, but but now let's let's now, you know, talk about your journey towards to, towards the PhD experience. How would you describe your PhD experience? Um, my my PhD experience was really good. Um, I enjoyed what I worked on, uh, sexual education for young people. Um, I enjoyed the community that I worked with uh, for my PhD, but also the community that supported me in Eswatini as well. And the other communities all over the world, yeah, with whom I had very good relationship with. Uh, so that that really made the PhD journey very interesting for me. I, I had the best support I can ever have imagined or dreamed of. So we, we talk about your your PhD topic. I mean, how did you come about that topic? Hmm, really good question. So after my master's, uh, during my master's, just to give a background, I was working on social cohesion for separated adults among uh, adults in South Africa, and the general the norm in in well, I think I think the general um, idea at my university then was that do something small for masters and try and see if you can push that forward for the PhD. But after thinking through that topic, it was really difficult for me to see um, something bigger than what I had already done in masters on that topic. But also our department was more focused around sexual and reproductive health in sub-Saharan Africa. So, and I know that there's a lot of research already around sexuality, um, teenage pregnancy and the likes, and also using demographic and net survey. But I also wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something more, much more interesting to me. And um, in, in, in finding my, my interest uh, I also wanted to do something related to IT because I have a flair for programming and computer related. Yeah, I have a flair for computing and designs. So in that process, uh, I, there was a there was a there was a workshop on digital and um, digital digital demography at the IUSSP. And when I saw that, I I was I, I had to read more about it so that I can put in an application for that workshop. But that I think that set the stage for what I later on did in my PhD. Um, that workshop opened a lot of um, opportunities for me to see what's been done elsewhere, and how I could align uh, my research or our research in the program regarding sexual reproductive health to technology use in in sub-Saharan Africa, and even to using new forms of data like Facebook and Twitter to study this uh, phenomenon. Contrary to I mean, maybe not contrary, but beyond using demographic and net survey and traditional forms of survey that we've been using in the program and also even in sub-Saharan Africa in general. So that was it for me, the workshop, uh, reading and preparing my my application material for that workshop and even engaging with the facilitator of that program and subsequent workshops and interactions with people uh, around the topic um, motivated me to do that research, I'd say. Yeah, I must confess that I've read um, a couple of articles you published from from your PhD thesis, and they are uh, truly, truly illuminating on uh, on what we can use uh, social media chats or messages, uh, what we can use what we can use them for. Yeah, the the article on uh, saving cells for marriage, for example, <laughs> it's an important, uh, it's an interesting article. Maybe if um. Maybe um, if you are down for it, we can um, uh, discuss that in, in another episode. But I must say that it's quite an interesting uh, work. I mean, and as you alluded to, this sort of work, you know, is not common in, on the continent. 
uh, especially in SRH space. And, and I think another thing I also want to mention is that one of our, our colleagues that passed on uh, last month, in our memory, our organization now wants to set up a grant opportunity for people interested in, in, in digital health. Again, just to carry our work on. I mean, she was uh, the pioneer in terms of digital health uh, in our organization. She's just to encourage more people to do interesting you know research similar to what you did uh that's just uh, for information and uh, the grants application we open uh, next year and it's probably something for you to also look forward to in case you uh, have some ideas that you need some resources to, nice. to, to, to thank forward. you sure so um i not also i mean from your from your profile you did a lot of writing uh, during your, your PhD as well. I mean, for you, I think it even began before before your PhD. You started, you've taken interest in uh, writing and publishing. And I know for many of our listeners, I think it's also one area <laughs> that they are keen about. So perhaps um, you can tell us about how, how you started, uh, how easy or difficult it was, and uh, some of the things that work for you in terms of uh, academic writing. How difficult it was. Well, I, I'd say it's, it's always difficult at first. And the first paper will, will, well, depending on when, but I feel like the, the first paper may not be the best. And it gets better as, as you write more and write more and read more. And I think that's also the same uh, the same applies to me as well. Uh, my first paper was written during my honors degree and then um, the subsequent ones during my master's and from all of those experience, uh, experiences and writing and revising and writing and rewriting, I think things got better and yeah, and I think that, that really helped me a lot. I started early and I wasn't afraid to get rejections. Um, many of those papers have been rejected in a number of places. Uh, I think one of the longest is the um, the one on time to second premarital beds. Yeah, that paper, we started writing it in 20, 2015. And I think it was only published in 2020 or there about, yeah, time to second premarital beds. And a lot has changed. Um, regarding that paper, we started from a simple logistic regression to a Cox proportional hazard regression now to even competing risk regression model. And a lot has changed from even the conceptualization of the work to the methods to defining and everything. So yeah, that's that's really it for me. Just be not, not being afraid of failing and writing and rewriting and learning from the old process has really been helpful for me. Now, besides not being not being afraid, are there other um, writing tips uh, that that worked for you that you want to share with our listeners? Uh, perhaps the one that would work for me most would be reading a lot. Um, I read a lot, and in reading, I'm not looking out for the, the finding alone. I'm also looking at the style, the style, uh, especially introduction but also even literature review and theoretical frameworks. I focus a lot on those. And I also read authors as well. So there's a part of reading a, a, a subject, like maybe teenage pregnancy, but also reading the authors, knowing what this person is doing and how they write. So for example, if I read a paper, even without looking at the authors, at least for the ones I've all, um, I follow, I know who's, who has written this because uh, it follows their style. People have like a style of writing. So sometimes I also try to model those styles when I'm writing, um, especially when I started, I'd model some styles. If I want to write for a journal, I'll, I'll download like maybe five or 10 papers from that journal and try to follow the style of writing and even see what they're looking for, even the methods and presentation of the results as well. So, so that has been it for me. Some I I'd say I read a lot, but also in reading, I also look out for the styles, but also looking out for what the journals might be interested in and trying to tailor my writing style to suit um the journal. But also in selecting my journals, I'm also conscious of who the audiences might might be. Who do I want um 
to read my paper or who are likely who are those that are likely to use them and I also target journals based on those and target my writing style based on the journal. Yeah, yeah th thank you so much. Uh, you know, I think for, for the next question I have, I sort of feel like you are already very good at writing, but I still do know that writing a thesis itself, it's, it's still a lot of uh, work. Uh, maybe you want to also take us through your experience writing your thesis. Yeah, writing my thesis... Well, for me, I, I followed, I don't know if it's a, it's the regular approach or style, but I was writing for publication even during my PhD. And in writing for publications, I was, yeah, I was writing for publications mostly. And after writing for publications, then I merged my, my results and sections into one thesis. So that really helped me. In writing for publications, I got constructive feedback from even journals, who either rejected um, my paper during peer review or gave me revision, uh, asked me to revise sections of the of the of the manuscript, and in doing all of that, I think that significantly improved uh, my writing, but also the quality of um, my my thesis before even going for examination. So it's like my final thesis is already like. A, like a reviewed, 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 reviewed versions by 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 a lot of experts. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a, an interesting style that I see recently, uh, especially in South Africa. I think not only in South Africa. I've seen other thesis from Netherlands as well. There's just a collection of articles, and um, yeah, maybe that's also another way to to work to you know students' advantage uh, because I mean the world of post. A PhD, it's uh, very competitive, and you need those papers to 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 be able to excel in in that world. I think another question is funding your PhD research. Was your PhD research expensive, and how did you fund your PhD? Um, hmm, good question. So, in terms of was my research itself expensive? I'd say yes, but I can also say no because it depends on which part of the PhD. So I used data from multiple sources. One of them was using Facebook. That was not expensive because I only had to write to a group administrator and they were so generous and they supported my research and just gave me the administrative privilege that I needed. Uh, the other aspect was also doing an online survey targeting young people in um, African countries. Kenya, Nigeria, and South Africa. That that part of the research was very expensive because uh, I spent, I think I spent about um, 12,000 rands to fund that section of the research because on one hand, I had to do an online campaign. I did that in the pilot phase, trying to test my tools. And when, after doing that, I, I found some discrepancies in the data. I had to collect a new fresh, um, a new data and do new campaigns and then also offering incentives to people as well. So that part of the research was expensive. My research was funded by the Southern African Systems Analysis Center. So I can't really say cost was a problem for me because I had funding uh, and that funding was generous enough to support my research. Um, I already have, uh, I, I had the postgraduate merit award, which was funding my tuition and that the Systems Analysis Center just covers everything else in terms of research, cost of living. And I also have a, I had a job in Swaziland. So, um, yeah, I was just having fun doing my research and getting the support I needed. So you are like a millionaire, I mean, millionaire in terms of Nigeria <laughs> currency uh, student. Yeah. You, were mil you were a millionaire student. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, like that. And I think for, for our listeners, they, they might be, be in a process of applying or looking for opportunities to apply to, and they are thinking, how do I put together a competitive application? How did you put together a competitive application? Because I believe the opportunity was competitive. Yeah, definitely. I think the the first thing is to, to read um, what the funders want. Uh, I think that, that's the starting step, know what they want. And, and see how you fit in their description for what they want to fund. 
but and also looking for the tiny details. Um, in my case, um, I think the digital aspects of sexual reproductive health really stood out uh, from all of the applications. Even I can I could tell even when uh, we got together as a group, and also um, so it's it's yeah it's it's pretty much um, knowing what the funders want and knowing how to how best to sell yourself and being able to yeah being able to sell yourself i'd say um know what you are doing being able to say it in a convincing way what role if at all would you say previous publication play in, in being competitive um for these grants i i think they play a role but maybe not necessarily a Maybe not necessary. I mean, I'm not downplaying the fact that I had, I had some publications during my applications while I was applying for these grants, but I also know some of my colleagues who had no papers or any publication and they were also part of the group. So I don't think people should um, feel um, bad or feel bad about the application even before submitting. I think being confident in oneself also reflects in the way that we write our application. So if you don't feel confident in yourself, it's going to reflect even in the way that you write your application. So being confident will actually even be in the first place. Being confident, if if you think you are doing something out of ordinary, be, be, be explicit about that even in the application. Say, I'm doing this and in this way, this this work is going to take a an innovative approach. And, and those tiny details or those... Uh, yeah, those tiny details and expression of confidence, I think, really helps a lot. Yeah, really helps a lot, even for any application. Yeah, uh, and, I'm, and I must say I agree with you that um, um, having a unique idea to it might might really be be important. And all all in all, understand what the funders want and see how you're able to sell yourself. Uh, to be able to to win might also be one one important thing and i think another important thing to ask you um is related to you know the competing interests on one hand you are working and on the other hand you're also working towards phd how did you manage those i know a lot of people are working and they are thinking yeah this work is killing me how do i combine this with phd um in your own case what was your experience combining both and uh, how did you manage to still be able to uh, complete your thesis on time, despite uh, combining your thesis with uh, with your work. Uh, I I think it's good. Like I think it's good to acknowledge privileges. Um, in my case, I've been privileged to work with um the best um set of people I could have imagined at my workplace at the University of Swaziland. My HLF department um is very understanding and very supportive. Even the department itself is very supportive, so um, we had that mutual understanding, and um, yeah, I had, we had that mutual understanding that enabled me to still work on my uh, thesis uh, with less burden from work, but also at the University of Vita, so there was less pressure. But I also, from the bigger side, I I feel I also enjoyed what I was doing. Every chapter is a learning for me, and it's fun for me, so. Yeah, at nights I was. I mean, I because because it's fun. It makes it easy for me to even work on it during weekends and at nights. And I also don't have a family, which is also a privilege. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's pretty much privileges, support from people, but also fun. I've been fun doing the work. Yeah. Great. So. It seemed like one of the outliers, uh, you know, it seemed all the your PhD experience uh, was rosy. So perhaps, uh, did you even experience any challenges at all? Um, of course, yes. Um, a number of challenges. As much as I had a supportive environment for both work and and um, and 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 my research. I still had to balance a number of dynamics and and things, so that that was an issue, but not not a challenge challenge in that context. Other challenges were around exploring an area I had little expertise in, and with little expertise also in the program. So, for example, using Twitter data is entirely new in 
in my program at the time. So I had to navigate some of these dynamics on my own. Yeah, I had to navigate some of these dynamics on my own. Even ethics was also a challenge. I remember at one of my presentations when I was defending my proposal, I got lots of negative uh, feedback. Uh, people didn't think the PhD was going to go well. Uh, some people think I was going to have challenges with ethics because of concerns about using Facebook data without ethical consents from all users. Um, there were concerns about even finances. There were concerns about my technical skills and management skills, ability to see the project through, especially in a setting where seeing a PhD through to completion is very important for for academics, right? So all 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 supervisors want to make sure that they can see that they can see their 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 mentees and students through to completion. So that was very a big concern, and me having to explain all of that and showing that I was ready to do the work and can commit to completing the work, um, yeah, took uh, required a lot of efforts. But yeah, I had support from from people. So when I so I took every challenge as an opportunity to also know more about the work that I wanted to do. Then, so for example, when there were concerns about ethical approval. I reached out to one of the professors that I know was doing something similar and already an expert. And he was also generous with supporting and giving a feedback. He shared so many resources with me. Uh, one of them was about, I think the Internet Association, I've forgotten, maybe Internet Association of Australia. And reading that protocol really helped me a lot in phrasing some of, um, in phrasing some sections of my methodology and ethical application. So that was one. The other concern was around whether the proposal was feasible, doable, or even representation was also a big concern. In our, pro in our program, we were used to doing research that can be generalizable to the entire populations. And for me, working on uh, social media use or digital forms of data was going to be a challenge because not everyone has access to internet, not everyone can read and write or even be on the internet. So having to explain all of these dynamics, uh, I mean, trying to get people's buying in, I'd say, was the biggest challenge for me. Uh, and I'm glad that, um, yeah, that went well. And now we've, I've, I think I've tried to set an agenda for, for future work on using social media and sexual health research in Africa. And I'm hoping that more research can build on some of the limitations and some of the strengths that I've identified in that work. Yeah, yeah, you know, we all experience uh, challenges and some you don't even plan for. Yeah, uh, some are related to money, but you, you don't have money challenge <laughs> at least. <laughs> now, it seems like now we've spoken about work, 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 work. What about fun? How did you have fun doing your PhD? Fun, fun, fun for me, like as leisure. A... what did you do for leisure? Um, to to... Well, for, for some of us, fun is is programming. Uh, <laughs> programming is fun. Work is fun. Uh, but on the outside of those, I also had friends uh, that we go out with and uh, we see places. I also travel, um, explore. Um, yeah. Well, I think I'm more of an introvert and home person so I spend most of my time at home oh by the way in terms of fun I also love kids so I had children uh, who often visit my house my house was a crutch when I was doing my PhD so when they finish from school they they visit they visit me in my my house it's like a crutch they drop their bags and they visit me and then we play from afternoon till dawn so that was fun for me playing with kids and and watching them do their things and supporting them with their assignments. Yeah, that, that was also fun for me. Now, I think there's uh, one important um, part of your work. Maybe you want to speak a little bit uh, more before we are close. I know you've been um, working on uh, quantitative demography or more related to data science. Yeah, you want to share a bit about that? Computational demography? Yes. Uh, so so during my PhD, computational and digital demography is an area that I became fascinated about, which involves the use of new forms of data like uh, social media data, 
online surveys to study population dynamics. And I tried to do that in my PhD using Facebook to explore how young people discuss issues around sexuality and virginity, but also looking at how technology can be used to improve sexual and productive health outcomes for young people in um, Southern Africa. And I find that um, area of research very interesting because um, because not there's there are very few research from Africa on Africa uh, from Africa by Africans um, in that regard. But I think it's really important. Um, I know there are concerns about internet penetration in Africa, but internet penetration is increasing, um, and also people who are online have a, have a peculiar need that cannot be ignored in as much as, and often uh, one way that I try to explain these dynamics to people is using online banking example. So for example, for banking, banking in general, we have the mobile uh, SMS, is uh, like SMS, mobile banking in terms of SMS, which can be accessed by everyone with, with a phone, right? But also we still have the regular traditional forms of banking where people can go to the bank, withdraw cash, go pay, withdraw. But there's the SMS uh, banking for anyone who wants those. But there's also still online banking, which involves internet, like using computers and mobile phones. And we also still have app development. People still get to use applications. So for example, people who do not have access to internet will not be able to use um, internet banking, for example. And those without phones will not be able to use SMS. But because of, uh, we're not going to say because of low internet penetration, we're not going to provide internet banking. We are going to provide all of these options and let people choose which platforms are most suitable for them and that meets their needs the most. And that's exactly the same thing I, was, I wanted to do in my research. Uh, I know that using the internet is going to disadvantage people without internet access, but why not provide education on internet on radio, on TV, in classrooms, and in all forms of all opportunities that are available and let young people decide on which ones they want. Some young people don't want to sit with an adult to discuss sexual health issues because of stigma, but they may be open to discussing this online. And as I have shown in my work, from discussing with them online, we may even be able to know some of the deep-rooted issues in their society and cultures that even affect people who are not online. And I think that's really a strong advantage of uh, looking at online sources. So from looking at what online people are saying, we can get a sense of what's even happening offline. Now this affects people who are offline. And some of these, we will never know them in person because people are not going to tell us these things because of social desirability and other issues that emerges or revolves around this issue. And in trying to build capacity for that, we've also, um, I mean, uh, Professor Adjuano started the computational summer institute in computational social science, in which I was I benefited greatly from, and we've also tried to continue that initiative, and also started the same one at Covenant University uh, last year. And I'm hoping that, and there was also another center at um, in Johannesburg, South Africa as well. And I'm hoping that um, there will be more of these opportunities in the coming years where people get to use online sources of data, even bibliometrics, um, Facebook, Twitter, even new forms, even TikTok, and analyzing all of these to see how can we better understand the society beyond asking people questions about what do you think? I mean, we know that um, on, um, surveys don't often capture the full breadth of the issues that people experience. We're just going to say, how do you feel today? Very good, good, excellent, poor, fair, bad. But what is good? What is not good? What is excellent? What is fair? From looking at what they post, we can get a better sense of uh, how they feel. From looking at the videos that they post, we can even get a better understanding of um, who they are, what they feel, how they are feeling now, and how they were feeling some days ago. And all of that, we may not be able to even capture in online service. And and that's not to say online service will replace these forms of data. It will ju only just be a complement, just like online banking, like I said. Online bank is not going to replace traditional forms of banking, but it's just going to be a complement and help us to and move us forward in um, understanding how we can better unless, um how we can better accelerate progress towards the sustainable development goals. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you that um, I mean there's a place for for technology in um, social and reproductive health, 
And I must say that um, I've seen a number of programs, especially using uh, online platforms like uh, mobile phones or like um, yeah, websites so yeah. to, to expand access to services for young people. Um, in fact, uh, there's one work being done in uh, Rwanda that caught my attention. I was uh, I was speaking with um, the program uh, manager for, for the work and um, and they were telling me the share number of uh, young girls that call into their toll-free. Yeah. And for, you know, some just for information, some for seeking services and they didn't know how to go about it or where to access those services. And um, and again, using online platform to navigate stigma. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of research nested into, into those uh, programs, online programs. And I know, I mean, there are other ones um, here in Kenya as well. And I believe in all parts of the world, just using internet to, to bridge the gap, you know, for, for, for young people who, who traditionally would not go to health uh, facilities uh, to seek care. Um, and, and the question is, how do we begin to develop um, some forms of evaluations rather than just say, canting in our people that benefited from the services? But how could yeah. we, you know, use the data they generate or even generate more data for research? So yeah. another area um, uh, to take the work uh, for, further, um, as opposed to even, uh, and also how do we use social media or even internet to, yeah. To quickly be able to address some of the concerns uh, young people face. For many young people, when they engage in sex and they are looking for, say, after sex contraception, they check online. Yeah. And uh, if they don't get accurate information, it might be a challenge because whatever they then learn might might put them at risk of, of pregnancy that they don't want. So, and I know a co a colleague of mine was uh, discussing. Uh, uh, can we are we able to assess how many people are searching for information around say abortion service for example and uh, what kind of research questions can we raise based on analyzing what young people are searching online uh, some might even be mental um, yeah. mental health issues maybe some are feeling suicidal and they need help and you know some of those services are not readily available in health facilities so they may go online but are we able to track and be able to um, create opportunity to, to meet their needs and all that? So, I mean, there's a space definitely for, mm -hmm. for meeting the needs of young people online and even for research, analyzing what people are saying online or searching for online. I don't know whether you have some thoughts around those uh, areas I touched on. Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, um, the fact that young people are searching for this information online and the rapid increase in this um necessitates the need for us to move our our strategies and um yeah our strategies online as well and and i mean in addition to what you have already said in terms of online applications and website i think many of them are really great uh the concern with some some of the many of them are really great but i think what what uh What's more important is to also look out for ways to facilitate bi-directional means of engagement. So what I've seen with many evaluation studies has been maybe developing a website where they put information how to, how, how to prevent um, unplanned pregnancy, how to do things, how to, how to, how to. Young people will read this, but and young people will read this but they will have questions and if and we need to have systems in place to answer their questions beyond what we've already provided and i think that is one um gap that social media has the potential to fill and also because young people and also and again there there is also um there is also the opportunity to provide this information organically so for example if we create a website and we put information on about sexual and different aspects of sexual and reproductive health, young people will only find them if they are looking for them. So if they don't know that website, they won't find it. Whereas on social media, if they are on our group, we get the option to give them information about everything and anything, even before they experience the need to use that information. And even without them signing on to Facebook to see that information. So this could be from trying to network with my friends, then I see a post about pregnancy prevention 
or even access to contraception. And I think this is a really strong, uh, a really good benefit of social media. And I'm looking forward to seeing how um, um, our, our researchers from Africa can leverage these opportunities um, to advance sexual and reproductive health beyond just telling young people, this is what we think you should be doing. This is what you should be doing. Um, this is when we think it's right to do this. And this is how you should do this. I think it's important to start listening to them in terms of what do they want, how do they want it, and when do they think it's right. And if if they are wrong, we can challenge some of those and correct misinformation. And, and we can only do that by listening to, to young people. And I think that's probably only possible on social media. But of course, like you said, online um phone calls or call uh, records can also offer that potential. But altogether, platforms that emphasize bi-directional engagement will achieve the best impact uh, rather than the one-way direction of telling people what to do. Mm -hmm. There is an app um, launched by the University of Nairobi called uh, the Rada app. And okay. um, it's used to um, address the needs of, uh, of young people on campus, be it uh, information on contraception, um, care after sexual abuse, or issues of um, mental health and all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and for them, they, they they you know they provide the information, but then they provide contacts in case you need uh, to consult a, a practitioner. And then uh, they, they they can they, you can consult practitioners that are, that are experts in dealing with young people that will not be judgmental and all that because um, young people value privacy. Uh, okay, I I in rounding up, I think we need to discuss uh, your post PhD experience. Um, so we want to discuss moving from South Africa to the UK parts. Why UK? Okay, maybe you can take another question with it. Maybe you can take two together. I mean, for a professor, you can take even five questions together. <laughs> Let me add another one to it. Um, getting opportunities in the UK, I know it's also pretty competitive. Um, what would you say uh, made you super, super competitive to, to be able to, to, to assess all these opportunities and benefit from them? Hmm, pretty good question. Um, post PhD life and why UK? Uh, so during, I think one of the things that uh, I was very conscious about during my PhD was my life, what was going to be my life post-PhD, what what do I want to do or achieve post-PhD? And uh, being able to answer that question and having the answer to that question helped me in doing whatever I did during my PhD, including what conferences to attend what workshops to attend and what seminars, um, where to present and what funding opportunities or scholarships to apply for. And for example, so one, one, one thing I was a bit, so for example, I was a bit, uh, I was very interested in, 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 in working at one of the reputable demographic institutes in the EU. I mean, okay, I think the first answer was that I think I was more interested in in moving to Europe and working and living in Europe. And within Europe, I narrowed my uh, I was more interested in one particular demographic institute uh, in Europe. And knowing that I wanted to work there, I started looking out for opportunities that can bring me closer to that institute. And one of them was the Barcelona Summer School of Demography, which with where I learned how to use R more for demographic research because I knew that that was a demographic institute because where I wanted to go was a is a demographic institute and they do really cool demographic research and yeah, modeling. And so it was important for me to know how to use R but also how to use R for demographic research and using R for computational and digital demography. And from there, I met someone from that institute, Tim Rife, and we we became um good. It became a really good uh, support for me, uh, in terms of research. And also, subsequently, I found the green talent opportunity, which I applied for and I was selected for, and that gave me an opportunity to visit the institute uh for three months. Uh, I mean, first for one month, and also subsequently for three months, which did not happen because of the outbreak of coronavirus. 
Aside that, there was also another workshop at the Institute, which I applied for and I was fortunately selected. So altogether, I think I was intentional about where I wanted to go and I was building, I was setting the stage for how to move there. And because COVID made that a little bit impossible, then the other option for me was to move to the UK. Um, and I also started looking out for opportunities in the UK. But again, even within the UK, I, I was specific about where I wanted to work. I wanted to work at an institution that is known for demography or population health. And yeah, primarily known for demography and population health. And for me, uh, universities that stood out in that regard would be University of St. Andrews, University of Southampton, and um, London School of Economics. Uh, or even, yeah, London School of Economics. And so when I found that opportunity to move to the University of St. Andrews and work on antimicrobial resistance in East African countries, I mean, again, I was also interested in Africa. I'm, I'm very passionate about everything that has to do with Africa. So in looking out for opportunities, I was intentional about uh, whether the project is focused on Africa and, um, yeah, focused on Africa. And, and I applied for this opportunity. And I think... In terms of skill and what made me competitive for that role, I'd say it's mostly the investment that I've made um, during my PhD, the skills that I've acquired in terms of R and visualizations, the networks that I've been able to acquire before applying. And even, yeah, before applying, I was already part of the coverage database team that was leading development of age-structured COVID-19 cases and deaths. And I was leading the African section of that database. And I think that that was, I think that really stood, um, um, that was a really big project. And uh, aside other things that I've worked on, um, my competency in R, um, my, my other initiatives like capacity development, like teaching people how to use R, uh, even in Swatini and also in South Africa. I think there's no better way to demonstrate that I knew how to use R than to say that I actually teach people how to use R and I do some of these on a volunteer basis. And also um, the research work that I've done in the past across African countries, I think those really helped me a lot. So it's it's in part the investment that I've made in the past in terms of skills and acquisition, but also in terms of research and the networks um, that I've managed to build uh, around the work that I'm doing, yeah. Thank you, thank you for sharing your experience. I think for our listeners, I think um, you know there is no end to learning, and there is no, yeah. and there is no skills that that you can't learn if you put your mind and soul into it. And anything you learn will eventually pay off, as uh, as you've heard from um, Dr. Emmanuel today. It's important to also project and, and see where, where you want to be uh, shortly after your PhD because it then helps you to begin to work towards um, attaining those uh, those goals of yours. So there's life after PhD and it's important to start planning for it even as you enroll for your PhD. Begin to project, map out the institutions you want to work in and, and understand the skills they will require and begin to mm -hmm. learn those skills. Um, so that said, uh, any final word for early career researchers and graduate students in general, in general, what would you like? What would be your advice for them? I think my I think I my advice will just be to not lose sight of the bigger picture while doing the PhD. Um, while doing the PhD, um, network as much as you can. Um, uh, look out for opportunities during the PhD uh, that can give you a leverage. I mean, it's basically just looking ahead and looking at the bigger picture. Um, that would be my advice. For for many of the people I've worked with, or some of the people we did our PhD together, or from just a general, um, from what I have seen with most PhD students, it's just that many people only start thinking about postdoc after the PhD. I think it's good to start thinking about postdoc even right from um, the beginning of the PhD. What skill would you need in the next three years and where do you want to work in? What will be required of you at that time? I think it's really good, especially for those of us who are not from the privileged uh, institutions. So for example, some people are from privileged 
labs and institutions where after the PhD, a postdoc is granted and it can continue like that. And even from postdoc, they can get a tenure position. But for some of us, we have to navigate some of these dynamics. So it's important to start to look ahead and, and know what will be required for you, of you and what skills will set you apart from these people and from every other person uh, in the application pool. And don't undersell yourself. Um, you have the skill, uh, you have everything, you have what it takes and just go for it and and present yourself in the best way possible. Yeah. I think this is a very good note uh, to end uh, this uh, conversation with Dr. Emmanuel. And, and the, 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 the important nugget to take away, if you're not taking anything away, is do not undersell yourself. Especially from where we come from, you know, we, we tend to not um, want to blow our own trumpet. So we tend to be constructive. Yeah. <laughs> And it's important that we do not undersell ourselves. Um, and, and I think this is the second time this is coming up on, on, on our podcast. I remember the podcast uh, that I did previously, and uh, this came up, that uh, we tend to, even when we quote for, for maybe a consultancy work, we tend to quote, quote lower <laughs> because we, we probably don't necessarily appreciate our words. Uh, as people with um, um, this expertise or certain expertise. So it's important that we do not undersell ourselves. Thank you for listening to this episode of my PhD experience podcast. Please, um, if you know people that can benefit from listening to this podcast, um, please be sure to share uh, and encourage them to listen. Um, this podcast is for uh, graduate students as well as early career researchers and uh, I mean animal for everyone there's a lot to learn about life about, about listening to people's stories and, and seeing you know what we can you know change about ourselves I myself I learned a lot from, from these interviews and I feel privileged to have the opportunity to you know speak to people with diverse expertise brilliant people all over all over Africa and um, so I encourage you to you know, like, comments, and, uh, and share. And more importantly, if you have any questions, uh, yeah, do well to reach out. I'm, I'm happy to, or even if you have suggestions on how to make the podcast even um, better or, and reach wider audience, uh, please share with me as well. So I'm your host, Anthony, and uh, we'll see you again for another episode. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for accepting our invitation.